Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. All right. Hey, we're going we're gonna to have some fun together. Before we do that, I'm, the tech team, man, you can either stop my clock or know I'm going to go a little overtime because I need a few minutes. Uh, Bill mentioned that, you know, when Dre uh, arrested us kind of at the beginning of service to go to prayer. And um, that there's, no, there's never an inappropriate time to go to prayer. But I've had something kind of just agitating me since that moment. I know it's the Holy Spirit standing there. I happened to walk up by the communion table, and I only heard one word when I came up to this altar, and the word was Ukraine. Mm, on, Not you, Chip. You, Ukraine. Terry and I, there's a woman that we have a privilege to, to work with, and uh, she happens to be from Ukraine. She's as sweet as I'll get out. Um, and uh, she came to me and asked for prayer because her parents are still there. And she calls them on the phone and speaks on speakerphone while bombs are going off everywhere. Can you imagine being invited in to pray in that? And so I laid hands on her this week in my office, and we just prayed tears streaming down her face, thinking and all of a sudden I wasn't here, I was there. And I think we need to remember that. I mean, believe me, if it matters to you, it matters to God. If you can't pay your light bill, it matters to God. If, if, if you're having hip replacement, it matters to God. But sometimes there is an attack on the entire human race. And every missile that flies, every bomb that comes is not from a country. It is from the pit of hell, even if we send them ourselves. The creation of nuclear weapons was an affront to God, his sovereignty. And I, the, the thing I take my stand with is there's a place in the Bible where Egypt was a ruling power, and they were rattling their sabers. And God says this through the prophets. He said, you came to me at your, with your chariots and your gold, and I laughed at you. Look what I can do with a shepherd boy with a rag and a rock and tell me that I can't overcome the foundation of the world. So I just, uh, I've got that on my heart and I think we need to unify our spirits with people who are hurting. Uh, American people and American Christians, we can become so self-absorbed. Um, rarely have we, I didn't drive to church today worried about, you know, whether a bomb would go off. But I just, I want to pray this psalm over our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. If you just join your hearts with me, this is Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and foes, they shall stumble and fall. Lord God, make those who attack innocent people stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. 
One thing I ask of the Lord that I will seek after to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. Oh God, we are uniting our hearts and minds with moms and dads and husbands and wives and grandparents and children and grandchildren and those who have been separated. Would you hide them in the shelter during this day of trouble? He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Now my head is lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when we, it says I, but this is we, cry aloud. Be gracious to the people of Ukraine, Lord God, and answer this. Come, my heart says, seek his face. Your your face, Lord, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Lord God, uh, before we embark on this journey here in this little place, and we're so glad, Lord, that where two or more are gathered, here you are. And we're so glad you're here today, Lord, but we're praying that most of you is in Ukraine. Lord, Lord, that you are healing the sick and you are beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks even now that you are ripping down strongholds when we think that we're in charge. And when we go off to our own devices, Lord, would you thwart it? Would you step on it? Would you give peace and comfort and love? And Lord, yes, we're in grief, so bold to say, God, will you raise them from the dead so that we may be in your company. But we unite our hearts and minds. Your servant, Dr. King, reminded us that injustice and hurt and bloodshed and war anywhere is a threat to us everywhere. We unite as part of your human family. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you, friends. I had to, I had to get that unstuck, right? It was sticking my praise over there. It was going to stick my preaching. So I just had to clear that for a moment. Hey, we're in this series that we're entitled, and I, I, as you can tell, I can't, I'm probably going to screw it up on the video seven more times. Diners, drive-ins, and dad. <laughs> <laughs> Diners, thank you. Diners, drive-ins, and dives. If you don't put my TV, I can't see it. Um, But anybody seen that TV show ever? You know, go round and round. Hey, our hospitality business got hit so hard in the last couple years. So what we're looking at is all the meals with Jesus and trying to discover our place at Jesus' table. And we thought as part of it, it'd be fun to go out there in the community and talk to people in the hospitality industry and talk about, did you know, um, if you read the book of Luke, okay, which Luke and Acts, scholars have said, Luke is the author of Luke and Acts. Here's a trivia question for you. Who wrote most of the New Testament? Most of you think the answer is Paul. I used to think that too. That would be wrong. Luke most wrote, wrote most of the New Testament. If you count the words between Luke and Acts, he he wrote most of the good trivia question. But do you know that scholars have looked at Luke and Acts and said one-fifth of every sentence and word that Luke writes has people at meals together at table. So if you take Luke's gospel and you take out the Christmas story at the beginning and you take out the passion story at the end, which are a big chunk of his writing, and you just look at Jesus' ministry, he spent at least a third of his time, maybe 40% of his time, at meals, at tables with people. 
That ought to mean something to us. We've got to figure that out. So we decided to go out there in the community and talk to people and talk to our people and thank them for their hospitality and, and get some windows in. So you're going to have a local restaurant each week that we're out there talking with. And what do they under, you know, how do they understand that? Uh, I don't care if they're a person of belief or not. Why a table? And you heard Cello saying, because at table you make friendships and, and you build community. And that's what Jesus is doing. So here's what we're doing. To support our local restaurants, we went out and we got a $50 gift certificate at for both of our campuses here and South Euclid each week. That's why you had to get a ticket coming in. This is not a raffle. This is supporting local business, okay? And so if you have this number, you're going go to go to the uh, connect table after. You guys can put it up there. And get your free meal from Cellos, okay? 355064. I better, give, I better give you a second because I, you're going to tune me out. If not, don't jump up and down. Just hold it in your heart, man. <laughs> don't be brash. Don't be egotistical. Don't say, look at me. All right. 355064. If you're not sure, go to the, um, to the uh, Connect desk and uh, say, Is it, do I have the right one? And they'll help you out. Okay. Thank you. There, let there be light. Um, all right. I, I, I hadn't anticipated the mass chaos I was going to create for the first two minutes of our message. Okay, 355064. All right. So we're at these meals with Jesus, okay? And uh, when we think about Jesus spending this much time at meals with people, we have to ask ourselves the following questions. You guys can kick my clock back on. Thank you. Um, the, que- the, the questions are, the first question is, why was Jesus eating and doing ministry at tables and over meals so scandalous. Why was it so scandalous? Because every time we see Jesus having meals, whether it's here, this is the first meal, there's nine meals in, uh, in, Mark, in Mark's gospel, and we're going to, or Mark's, Luke's gospel, traditional meals. I think there's more, but we're going to follow the tradition. So we got six meals on the Sundays leading up to Holy Week, a meal on Monday, Thursday, a meal on Good Friday, a meal on Easter, and we're going to look at all of them. But we see people, whether Jesus is with Zacchaeus, whether he's here at Levi's house, next week in Simon the Pharisee's house, and the woman comes in, there's always something about Jesus having meals with people that was so scandalous, and yet he did it all the time. So we got to ask ourselves, why is it so scandalous? Here's first point. The reason it's so scandalous is because breaking bread at table together was so central and so sacred. Not just in Judaism, but in the entire Middle East. But I've told you many times, in the Jewish law, if you broke bread with someone, literally, if you sat at table and broke bread with them, you were entering into a covenant of friendship for life. For life. I had a friend of mine in seminary who went over to the University of Jerusalem to study and there was an Orthodox Jewish professor who had been there and, and he'd been there over a year and they, they got very close but it took about nine months and the professor said, I would like for you to come to my house tonight for dinner. And he was like, he was, felt like he was being asked to go you know, before heads of state. He didn't know what was going on. And he went there and his wife was very sullen and the man was very sullen and the children were very sullen and then they broke out into celebration and they ate meal together and he was leaving that night a casual American and, and the man grabbed him by his arm and turned to him. He said, now you know we can never lie to one another again. That was in the 20th century. And back then, if you were in covenant of friendship for life, here's what the covenant meant. It didn't mean we'd be Facebook friends. It didn't mean you'd watch my TikTok. Okay, or we'd talk, call each other on the phone or go have coffee. If you were in covenant of friendship for life, it was your sworn covenantal duty that if I fell into debt, you had to pay my debt. If I was killed in battle, 
or I died of a heart attack, you had to raise my children. This is, that's for life. It wasn't like, you know, for temporary custody. This was for life. And Jesus is entering this kind of covenant of friendship with who? Everybody who will come to the table. Do you understand the religious people are freaking out? Because they want to decide who comes to the table. So that was the first reason. The second reason is, and this is the big one, because of who Jesus invited to his table. Like it'd be okay if he invited heads of state and the, you know, the Pope and the lead pastor, you know, I might get in and the holy, holy. No, he, Jesus is, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and, and cut-ups and what is going on? If you saw the title of my sermon is, look who's coming to dinner. And that drove them insane, right? And so that's the question we, that'll prevail throughout this why it's so scandalous. Keep that in your mind through this whole series. The second thing is, why did Jesus spend so much time eating with others at tables? One reason, you heard it from Cello, you hear it from almost all the people we talk to in the restaurants, we've been filming, I hear this thread all the time, and here's the answer, because you make and build relationships by breaking bread together. You make and build relationships. See, if Jesus was just a pulpit preacher, he's up here like me, and he's preaching about, don't believe these people, God is love, he's not out to get you, then he would have been known as the love preacher. But because he shared that message at tables, they knew that he was love incarnate, that he was love come down, that he wasn't love talked about at the table, he was love sitting at the table. And, and that, that, that's a piece of it. Leonard Sweet, who's a, a good friend of mine, has written a book where he talks about this, and he says this. He says, at the table where food and stories are passed from one person to another and one generation to another is where each of us learns who we are, where we come from, what we can be, to whom we belong, and to what we are called. Jesus, as I've told you many times, was not trying to bring another religion. He was creating us to be back into relationship with God and with one another. The Pharisees were kind of working on that God thing, but they sure flunked the test of the one another thing. And so let me just jump into the story. We have this first meal, okay, this first meal at Levi the tax collector's house. I love how this is set up. Um, It says that after this, we, we can go ahead to the slide at this point. After this, right, Jesus saw a taxpayer. After this, after what? After what? We understand what's been going on. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus announces who he is. He gives his first sermon, and they try to throw him over a cliff after he gives it, by the way. Um, Gives his first sermon, announces who he is. I'm God, okay? I'm here uh, to proclaim the year of Jubilee, to set the captives free, to bring sight to the blind, um, you know, to deliver all those who are oppressed. This is his his intention. And in chapter 5, he starts building momentum for the movement. He begins to call people to be his followers, his inner circle, his lieutenants, his apprentices. But Jesus calls some strange folk. In fact, I have to be honest about this. This is where I empathize with the Pharisees, right? Because if I had three years to run a ministry that would change the world, and I could only call like 15, 16 men and women to be part of my inner circle, I would have gotten resumes, I would have held psychological background checks. I would have made them take Strength Finders or Myers-Briggs. I would have got references. Not Jesus. 
calls a blue-collar fisherman that can't catch anything in the middle of the night. Calls a woman plagued by seven demons. Do you understand why the religious people were scratching their heads? Somebody once said, Jesus doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. And he calls most anybody to come and to follow him. And if you read chapter 5, he shows them what this ministry is going to be about. In fact, the first two things he does, one is heal a leper, the second one is heal a man who's paralyzed. These were two people who were viewed as ritually unclean. They couldn't even come to church. They couldn't get in the doors of the temple. They'd have to sit outside and beg. And Jesus said, I just want you to see these are exactly the folks that we're called to and we're going to tear down the gates of hell and we're going to restore people back into the human family. And I don't care that you, you, know, you had a good fish when I told you to catch over the other side of the boat. Now we're going to fish for people. We're going to bring God's family back together. We're going we're to lift people up who are low and bring people down who are high and bring him to the table. And I love this. He, he saw a tax collector named Levi. And look at those next five words. Everybody say them. Yeah, I love this. I don't know why that jumped out at me. He, he, called, he saw Levi sitting at the tax booth. In other words, you know, this is Jesus calling a drug dealer or a Ponzi scam artist, not over cocktails at a party and saying, I know you've done some shady things, but why don't we get together and have a Bible study? No, this is right when the drug dealer's making his sale on the corner or the Ponzi artist is getting the elderly couple to sign away their life savings, and Jesus goes, hey, you, come here, follow me. Isn't that radical? How would you have handled that if you were, you know, Sir Right Reverend Mix-a-Lot? Right? You'd have had an attitude too, right? But Jesus gives them this answer. This is the Pythagorean theorem of his kingdom. I'm going to tell you this right now. What Pythagorean theorems is to geometry, what Einstein's law of relativity and, and uh, Isaac's, Newton's third law, art of physics, this is the baseline given of Jesus' gospel. If you flunk this, you can't go forward. In fact, it's so important that Jesus is rude here. Jesus is never rude. He's never rude, but he's rude here. Because the Pharisees aren't talking to him. They're talking about him. Because that's what we do. I love it in ministry, 30 years of ministry. Can I be bitter for a moment? You all will heal me. Lori will come up here and anoint me with oil after this service. One of the things I get a little bitter about is for 30 years of ministry, somebody will come up and say, well, you know, pastor, people are saying, who people, what people? Why aren't they talking to me? Jeez, I hate answering to their saying. Who are they? Like, I'm, I'm kind of a nice guy. I don't have four heads. Just come talk to me. But they're, they're like, we are. They go to the disciples. Why does your master sit at a table with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus, never rude, is rude here. He says, ah, I'll answer that one. <laughs> and here's his, here's his baseline. Ready? Jesus said, okay, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, I got to tell you something. When I came to Christ, was in college. I'd been religious. I went to church all my life. But it was my college chaplain. I've shared this many times who brought me to Christ. This was his go-to verse. I had never heard that verse before. Like, this isn't preached about a lot. 
especially when you're a church I was in, which was the power of positive thinking and just do good and be good and pull yourself up. And, you know, if, if you say the right prayers, if you, if you do the right things, if you be a good person, if you don't smoke or, or drink or chew or go with girls who do, you know, all those things I was taught growing up. If you do all these things, then you'll be successful. Then you'll get into Ivy League College. Then you'll have a good, then you'll have a good career. And then God will take you into heaven. That's what I was taught. Nobody preaches on that in that school of thought. But Coleman would read that, and it set me free. <laughs> no, Chip, I didn't come to call righteous Chip. I came to call, call broken Chip. Because I know you through and through. I know you to the bottom. And you know what? Do you know what? There's nothing wrong with striving, and I've got achiever strength and do it. But you know, that can be really, really weary. If you're exhausting is the word. If you're trying to get God's favor that way. God said, you, you already have my favor. And he says... Those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who are sick, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. When I heard that, my chains fell off. My heart was free. And I went back when Coleman preached his last sermon as university chaplain at Colgate. I went back to honor him. Many of the students did. And it would be the last sermon he'd ever preach in his life. He lived longer, but he never preached again. And he preached on this passage. And listen, I just wrote down his words. I'm going to read them to you because this is, what, this is the kind of thought that delivered me. Coleman said this, what can we say when we hear Jesus tell us I came not to call righteous and say in effect, if you have it all together, if you know how to live, you have no need of me. Those whose religion has made them better than other people, those who have worked out all their inner conflicts and conflicts with others, those who know how to know what their priorities are and always live by them, those who know how to raise their children without error. Those who manage to always love their neighbor just like they've been taught. Those who believe they treat everybody just about as they should. Those who live always to honor their God or whatever high value they treat as God. I did not come to call such people. You don't need me, Jesus says. You've already made it. I would be a waste of your time. I came not to call those who know how to live, those who have it together, but those who don't. Those who are still trying to figure out how to live more fully and love more freely. They are welcome in my home and at my table, and maybe, just maybe, I am welcome at theirs. That's the Pythagorean's theorem. Now, ten chapters later, as Bill wrote, they still don't get it. Because if you read that first verse, did you hear what Bill read? Ten chapters later, this is the verse. It said, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, murmuring is another translation. And saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. I love this because nowhere did it say that the tax collectors and sinners were coming to eat with him. They didn't call ahead for reservations. They didn't call DoorDash. They were just coming to hear him. They are just coming to hear his message. But these guys, it has scarred them so emotionally to see Jesus breaking bread with the riffraff that they assume he's going to do it again. And Jesus tells them, he illustrates his point with three parables. Three parables, remember them? Parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, parable of the lost son, or sons. <laughs> Right? And, he, and he, he says, I got to teach you on this. And so we're gonna, I'm going to really focus on that first parable today of what it means. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, which one of you having 99 sheep and one that's lost wouldn't leave the 99 and go find the one that's lost? Now, that was kind of tongue in cheek because no shepherd would have done that. You wouldn't risk the 99 for the one. But Jesus says, but God does. 
So he says to them, so I want us to look real quick, we've got 16, 17, 20 minutes here, about the sheep, the search, and the shepherd. Ready? Here we go. When, here's a baseline. Jesus calls us sheep, right? I want you to know when Jesus calls us sheep, it is not a compliment. Everybody thinks that, oh, he's the good shepherd, and we're fuzzy, wuzzy little lambs. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. Bah! He puts me in green pastures, right? It's such a wonderful thing. Let me tell you something. Sheep are stupid. They're one of the dumbest animals that God created, truthfully. I, I read a, a, a quote by a European shepherd just, just recently. He said this quote. This is a guy that works with sheep for a living. This is not out of a church. This is a shepherd with dirt on his hands. He said this. A sheep is, stupid, is a stupid animal. It loses its directions continually in a way that a cat or dog never does. Because of, this continu- because of this, they continually wander off. And even when you find them, they rush to and fro and scream and will not follow you home. So when you find it, you must seize it, throw it on the ground, tie its front legs and hind legs together, put it over your shoulders and carry it home. That's the only way to save a lost sheep. I was on YouTube this week. Let me just show you some modern day. These are modern day examples of modern day shepherds around the world with their sheep. You ready? We're going to show you two. Here's one. Young boy, sheep falls in the ditch. Young boy, here he is over there, puts his belt, puts it around the leg. Come on, let me get this sheep out of here. Finally, yes, we got him out. There he goes. One, two, three, four. Bam. Yeah, there we go. That's a sheep. That's a sheep. Okay, here's a guy over in the Erie Canal. They said that it took this shepherd 30 minutes to get the sheep out of there. He tore down his fence. He's finally relieved. He crawls out of the ditch, and here goes the sheep back in the ditch. Yep, there we go. Now watch this, shepherd. This is classic. This is what God should do to us. The heck, the heck with that. I'm putting my fence back up, and I'm done with that dumbass. So that's a sheep. So let's meditate, class, on this illustration. When Jesus said, you're a sheep. He's teaching us something about ourselves, two things. One, like sheep, we need to be rescued. We can't just be taught. See, we think we're dogs. All we need is a pointer. I have a yellow lab. I love her with all my heart. She's going to be 13 in April. God, I love this old girl. But she's been an escape artist all her life. You leave a little crack in the gate in our backyard, whether somebody mowed the yard or one of the kids, and she is off to see new horizons. You know, the last time she did it to me, it was over Labor Day weekend. I was so afraid. And I, luckily, we have this little chain around our neck with my name and phone number and her name. And I get a call. I've been looking for her for literally three hours. And somebody says, hey, I bet you're looking for Leah. You bet I am. Way up on Gates Mills. You know, she just had to see the Emerald City. And, and when I drive up there to pick her up, man, you know, he had her on a leash. And she's like, hey, Dad, good to see you. What's going on? Let's go home, you know. And I'm like, I want to wring your neck. I want to eat you for dinner, right? But she was glad. And if I'd have walked home, guess what? She'd have follow me home, right? Not a sheep. That's a dog. See, we think we're dogs. I just need a little inspiration. Just point me in the right direction. But see, that's why God didn't send a teacher, because we're not dogs or cats. We're sheep. And we're in need of a shepherd. And when we understand that, we realize that we can do nothing to earn our own salvation. We're sheep. 
Terry and I were in Ireland back in 98. I was preaching revival there. And after I was done preaching, we stayed a couple extra days and we drove through the countryside and we stopped at inns. And there's a lot of sheep in Ireland. In fact, their famous dishes like lamb stew and shepherd's pie with lamb, you know. And we noticed uh, as we were driving out there, all these sheep would be up in these cliff areas and rocky and some of them were just standing in place and others were grazing. And it was kind of weird because um, I'd only see them at fairs, right? I'm from the city and like they are all in this little pen. Now here they're up on ledges and all this. And we went to this inn and we were getting ready to go in for lunch. I looked and there were two dead sheep at the base of the, of the cliff and there was a shepherd over there who was putting them on their cart. So I figured, what the heck, let me walk over and I talked to him and I said to him, hey, what's going on? He said, these sheep. I, I don't have a good Irish accent. Um, anybody want to come up and do it for me? No. Uh, you know, Lottie, these sheep, you know, whatever. But they, he said, they're, 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 they drive me crazy. In that, they, they just follow each other and they get in the most impossible places. And he taught me that when sheep see grass, they're going to go for it. They're going to go for it. Wherever it is, they're going to go for it. And what happens, they get out in this grass in these impossible places and they eat up all the grass and then they find out they have no way to get back. And so they either fall to their death or the shepherd has to rescue them. Now let me ask you something. Have you ever gone out on a ledge for a little bit of grass that you just had to have? I'm not speaking to the hippies. Get that out of your mind, okay? <laughs> Pastor Terry's back there going, grass what? Yeah. Yeah. Pastor Terry was at Woodstock for all of you tuning in. No, I'm talking about that, that job you just had to have, that promotion you just had to have, that relationship that you got if you didn't have it, and you just had to go get the grass. And when that grass was gone, because it always will, the grass withers, the flower fades, <laughs> and you end up on that ledge, right? All, some of you know that we're sheep, and when we're sheep, it needs, we need to be rescued. And sometimes that rescue can be a little painful, <laughs> Stone on the ground, drag where we didn't want to go. Okay, let's go to the search. That's the sheep. That's our condition. But the search to find the lost sheep and bring it home. We see in each of these cases, they're, they're, it's bringing people home. See, the problem, something we'll miss in these parables is the, what happens at the end of it, right? The lost sheep is returned to the fold. The lost coin is returned to the treasury. The lost sons, older and younger, are invited to return to the family. See, God doesn't bring us back to put us in a corner of a room and, and learn all of our, you know, be able to recite the Psalms from memory. He brings us back into community. He brings us back to the meal. He brings us to the table. And that's why it says in that day of the kingdom, in, in God's kingdom, people will come from north and south and east and west to sit and eat in the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus in Revelation says, I stand at the door and knock, and if you open to you, I will come in. And some preachers stop there. But it says, I will come in and eat with you. He's bringing us back to the table. He's bringing us back to the community. He's bringing us back to the family. He said, I'm here to get my family back. And the Pharisees are having an issue because why? Because in their minds, if you're starting a religious or a faith community, you don't start it with those people. In fact, those people are to be excluded from the table until they get their stuff together. I was reading something, a Philip Yancey, wonderful, about toxic Christianity, toxic churches. He said there's three marks of toxic churches. One of them, and you guys don't have to chase for it. I, I, I got here somewhere. One of them was this. Toxic churches are, are based off of fear. They're based off of exclusion. And they're based off of rigidity. 
Now look how those things could go together. Like, take lepers in that day and age. I'm afraid of the leper. Why? Because they, I might catch leprosy. So the solution is to exclude them. And then I need to get rigid so I'm backing myself up on why I'm excluding them. That, Philip Yancey says, is toxic. But what God's community is supposed to be, what healthy churches and healthy Christianity, they're marked by these. People who serve, people who love, and unity. And what Philip Yancey, this great Christian writer for 30 decades, said what breaks his heart, he said when he goes out to people and he says, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word Christian? He has never once in 30 years heard one of these three words. And that's why the Pharisees were having an issue because in them, you don't start a church with these people. Those are the people you exclude. And Jesus is saying you're forgetting some things. The law that you carry around your head, and they, they used to wear the Bible. It's one thing to walk around with the Bible. It's another thing to actually read it. <laughs> and one of the scriptures they forgot is Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. Not some of us. All of us. All we like sheep have gone astray. The other thing they forgot is one of the foundational principles of the Torah, and that is each and every one of us have been created in the image of God, the Imagio Dei. Now, I'm going to tell you something. The Christianity and modern Christianity, we have so watered that down. Oh, yeah, I'm creating the image of God. I look in the mirror. I see God in me. Let me tell you something. That was such a radical proposition in that day and age. For God to say, let us make them in our own image, male and female, let us make them just so men don't go to your head. All of us, every one of us, treasured by God. Manufacturer says we are his handiwork. We're his masterpiece, each and every one of us. You have a manufacturer, you have a creator, it is God himself, and they are all created, God said, in my image. Now, why is that radical? Go back to the time that it was said. Look at the great empires of the world, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia. There was one person made in the image of God. Who was it? Pharaoh, the leader, right? In fact, Rome picked that up and all of a sudden Caesar is Lord. And the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God comes in and says, that is garbage. Every one of my people is made in the image of God. And that means we're all royalty, not just the person sitting up on the hill. And he's saying to the Pharisees, you have forgotten this. And yes, all of us are infinitely lost. But yes, because the shepherd leaves the 99, it says most foremost, we're infinitely loved. So when you think I'm totally lost, remember you are totally loved. And the shepherd will leave the 99 to come get you. And to bring us to that table. And, and that's the table, God. And if you're not comfortable there, maybe you're a cultural Christian. Maybe you need to remember you're out in a ledge somewhere and you need Jesus to rescue you and it'll soften your heart. And you won't care who's at the table. You just want to be there too. <laughs> Second YouTube video you got to look at this week. You got to look at, if you, you look at sheep that were in the ditch and went back in the ditch, you'll get those ones I had. But I got another one that gave me just a glimpse of what this new community that Jesus was trying to create. And I found it in a YouTube video. If you want to look at it later, you have to, you have to put in YouTube, Restaurant of Mistaken Orders. Restaurant of Mistaken Orders. How many of you get orders that are mistaken? You get a little mad, right? No, I didn't order it with cheese. No, I, I ordered it with this. No, why am I waiting so long? And I'm sorry, honey. She had a bad experience last night. Um, you know, why are we going through these things? You know, why, and I get that way. I, I, don't want, I don't want the mail. I didn't want the uh. but, but they in Japan, it's a Shizuoka. I can't say that city. Japan created a restaurant called the Restaurant of Mistaken Orders. 
And this renowned chef in Japan, he started this restaurant, and his entire wait staff, waiters and waitresses, there's only one requirement of them, that his entire wait staff has dementia. He will not hire a waiter or waitress unless they're suffering from dementia. And he says dementia is so widely misunderstood that it can often mean you are in complete isolation from society. He said we want to change society to become more caring and easygoing so we can live together in harmony. And if you look at that YouTube video, all the waiter and wait staff, they're bowing as the people are coming in, and then they begin to wait on them at tables. And it is, it is hilarious because they can't remember what people ordered. And they're coming out, and, and people are helping each other, and they're laughing, and they're going on. And there was a writer who went in there and said, there is an atmosphere of joy and smiles in this restaurant that I have never seen in my life. He said, at every table, the wait staff needs help getting the plates and the food to the correct person. And there's gentle apologies, and there's a lot of confusion, but there's a lot of joy, and there's a lot of laughter. And here's what the owner says. He said, our restaurant is stylish, and it serves great food. If your order was mistaken, you can shrug it off with a smile and enjoy whatever comes your way. My God. The name of our restaurant, Restaurant of Mistaken Orders, allows our customers to enter with an open mind. They expect mistakes, so they're okay with it. It creates an air of easygoing acceptance. I'm convinced that if our message became more mainstream, society would become more loving, more tolerant, and more open. That's what Jesus came to build. Get over it, Pharisees. And come and sit at the table. And they, have, they take a survey. Everybody that eats at that restaurant, you have to fill out a survey. Just two questions. One, you have to say, was anything in your order mistaken? <laughs> yes or no? The second question is, are you leaving here happy? Over 40% of people say that something in their order was mistaken. And 99% say that they leave there happy. That is the community that Jesus came to bring. And he says, look, there's something that's in this community. It's joy. He said, joy is what connects the two parables together. Did you hear? The shepherd finds his sheep and he says, rejoice with me. And he calls all his neighbors. The woman finds her coin and she says, rejoice with me. And Jesus says, I come from a different community of heaven. And I'm going to tell you, in that community, there is more joy for one person that was kind of out there on the fringes who comes home than there are with a thousand PhD righteous scholars who don't think they need it. And let's come to the table. Come to the table. There's joy. Let me close here before we come to this table. There's joy because we have a good shepherd. And not just a good shepherd, I should change that word. We have a great shepherd. We, you know, shepherds are totally in control of their sheep. I, I read another story in Spain. Um, there was a shepherd, a contemporary shepherd, and he was up in the, in the mountain area before a, a larger city in, in Spain. It wasn't Barcelona or something that size, but a significant city. And he was up there with his iPhone, and he set his alarm off because he had to wake up at 3 in the morning to go with the sheep. You know, back then we had shepherds in the Bethlehem, but now they're iPhones and GPS and all that. But he's up there, and, and uh, his alarm didn't go off, and he overslept. How many of you know animals have a sense of time? You know, like, I would love to sleep past 7 in the morning sometime in my life, but my yellow lab, if I do, breaks into my bedroom and it's like, what's up, dude? Like, you know. Hey. And so the shepherd overslept, but the sheep, you know what they did? He overslept. What they did, what sheep do? They migrated down into the city. The police had to go find the shepherd, wake him up, and it took them five hours to collect 1,300 sheep and get them back up in the hills. 
See, we are utterly dependent on our shepherd. Shepherds aren't consultants. Jesus said, I didn't come into your life to be a consultant. I said that last week. You know, shepherds don't give with their sheep and do a little PowerPoint presentation and say, look, I want to give you a little direction. I want you to know that. No, that, that's dogs, not sheep. We're dependent on our shepherd, but this is the greatest shepherd. This is a shepherd we can absolutely trust. You know why? Because on Passover, our Jewish brothers and sisters still celebrate Passover, but Passover started over the Exodus. You remember when the Hebrews were delivered from, from slavery in Egypt, and the seventh plague, the death angel came, and they were told, take a lamb, take a sheep, and kill it, and eat it, but before you do, take the blood of the lamb and put it over your doorpost, and the death angel will pass over. That's what Passover is. And for years and years since then, they remember that. And if you go to a Jewish Passover, there's the bread at the table, there's a the wine, there's the other things, and there's the lamb. Something bothered me when I went to seminary. If you read all the gospel writers, at the Passover meal that Jesus serves, and we'll celebrate that on Monday, Thursday, at that meal, at Passover, there's the bread, there's the wine. Where's the lamb? There's no lamb on the table. The gospel was, and it took me a while to say, oh, there's no lamb on the table because Jesus was the lamb of God at the table. John the Baptist said he's the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And Jesus Christ, I, I can redeem you because I'm the only shepherd who became a sheep. I became a sheep for you. And that's why Isaiah says he was oppressed and he was afflicted like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's before its shears. The righteous one shall make many righteous. And Jesus Christ didn't just wrestle us in the wilderness and put us up over his shoulders. He went into the depths of hell itself and put the crossbar of the cross over his shoulders and he took upon himself all of our sin and all of our brokenness and all of our sheepiness and he went and he, and he gave his life as a ransom for many, and that's why we can trust him. Because yeah. he's the only shepherd that ever became a sheep. Okay, application, I promise I'm through. Application, two application points. Here's how we trust our shepherd. Not by being the Pharisees over in the corner and saying, well, hey, those people at the table, I'm too good for that. We, we, we honor our shepherd by committing to one another. We commit to one another, honor our shepherd. This is the gospel and the new life that brings and creates a new kind of community. Watch this. And it's our job to realize that community in our midst. Two ways. First one is this. Build a community that is filled with beautiful, unified difference. Build that community and you're building the kingdom of God. Now, we're known for our diversity in that, but there's still people that might be in a small group or somewhere and say, I'm just not sure I fit in. I don't see people like me here. I don't see single people here. I, I, don't, I don't see that many, you know, I'm from Korea. I don't see many people here. Would you please stay and help us grow more into the beautiful, unified, different community? And can I say this to you? You can help us and maybe we can help you as we work together to build this kind of table. It's the table that'll change the world. Please stay and commit to that. And the second thing is, we build this community, if we build a community where sinners are free to admit they're sinners. Do you know how exhausting it is to be on? It's one of the things, I mean, in my profession, you know, as a pastor, hey, let me tell you something. I gotta tell you, I don't take for granted what an amazing church I have. 
I don't have to be up here pretending. One of our core values is authenticity. And when I'm having a bad day, I can usually tell you all, I'm just having a bad day. I know I'm preaching. I know I stink today. And you all love me. But early on in ministry, <laughs> God bless you. Oh, you're going through hell. Oh, I'm sorry. The Lord is good. Bless you. It's exhausting. We need to be in a place where we say, I'm broken right now. I'm mad right now. I'm hurting right now. I don't understand it. We have other people to say, you know what? I've been where you've been. I know what that feels like. And I'm going to hang on tight to you. James 5, 6 says that we pray with each other and we heal one another. He said, confess your sins to one another and heal one another. But we can't do that if we're not in a table of authenticity. Far too many churches shoot their wounded. When somebody starts to limp in the herd, it's survival of the fittest and we move on. I want to be in a church that lifts up our wounded and grabs our people and says, I won't go forward if you won't go with me. Let me close with this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer that I really love. He says this, when the Bible says confess your sins to one another, saying religiosity and morality permits no one to be a sinner. Religion permits nobody to be a sinner. Morality permits nobody to say a sinner. Everyone must conceal their sin from him or her else and from others. But it's the grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the religious to understand. The grace of the gospel confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner. You are a great desperate sinner. Now come as a sinner you are to the God who loves you. He doesn't want anything from you. He doesn't want a sacrifice or a work. He just wants you. This message is liberation through truth. The mask you have to wear before for everyone else will do you no good before him. Confess your sins to one another. Get the freedom of being sinners before one another. Confess your sins, accept one another, and be healed. If by the gospel, my closing words, you become a member of Jesus' flock, you'll become a person who is so kind and so gentle and patient with other people who sin. Of course, because you know you're a sinner yourself. And only you've been saved by grace. And when I say, the interesting thing is when Jesus says in the word, confess your sins to one another and heal one another and love one another, he's not just talking about a community of sheep. He's talking about a community of shepherds. And we're all shepherds. How did that happen? When we can go from being witless, helpless sheep to being shepherds to each other because our great shepherd became to be a sheep and died for us so we might die to ourselves that he might raise us to be like him. Well, that's the first meal. You want hungry for more? <laughs> I, I had a Colleen McCulkin moment from Home Alone. Have you had enough or are you thirsty for more? <laughs> We're going to come to a table. I want you to know one thing Pastor Scott has worked on for over a year is microchurches. We talked about that last week. We've got a lot of small groups here. We've got small group Bible studies. They're amazing. We've got men's groups and women's groups, all kinds of groups. Scott's also been working on microchurch. They're based on tables, no agendas, uh, just sharing life together, confessing our sins to one another if we need to be, encouraging one another, weeping together. So if we come to those tables, we start to build some of those communities, right? We can't be a church of 1,200 people where we know everybody. I said that last week. But we can be a church where everyone's known. Everyone has a place at the table. Even those old Pharisees, man. Jesus, Jesus always was inviting him. Next week we'll see him in the home of one of them. Okay? So we're going to look at this table uh, that we're going to show an invitation. And then Pastor Terry uh, will invite us. Well, actually, I'll be back to bring us to Christ's table. Take a look at this real quick and we'll close. <laughs>